funeral procession went past. It must have been the girl's mother. I remember her looking at me. You could almost feel the daggers going through you. You know, you know you've killed my daughter. Oh, I didn't kill her. You sort of put yourself in her, her position. Um, my young daughter's out there in the, in, the, in the paddy field working hard and all that, and suddenly she's caught in this bloody fight that she probably wants nothing to do with. Bill Roberts has lived most of his life next to the Australian bush in Barara. He comes from a military family, so it seemed natural that he would enlist in the army in 1963. And then he found himself in very different terrain. Born in Borneo, because my father served as Rhone Cutlass Artillery Officer. He went from the Middle East to Borneo in about 45, I think it was. My mother, who was a local lady, was a, a, was a Red Cross nurse. And of course, Dad and her got together and I popped along in, uh, in 46. And I was born in a place called Miri, which is just below Brunei. I was a orig- original Asquith high school boy. I, I, and I joined the army in, in, in 63 and down, went down to Melbourne. In 1964, I joined 4th Battalion Royal Australian Regiment. We did all our core training and, and our battalion training in preparation to go to Malaya in 1965 for two years. And it was a toss-up between us and one RAR as to who was going to go to Vietnam first because we were both ready to go overseas. And uh, the uh, one RAR went before us, thank God, because we wanted two trips. And uh, we went in... April 66 to uh, to Borneo. It was called the the confrontation or confrontasi is the, the, the was we know about the confrontation, and we were attached to the 28th Commonwealth Brigade, which is a British brigade in in a place called Malacca, and uh, in September they called it quits. So it was the end of that. I, I was a platoon medic. Your first priority, obviously, is to to treat anybody. Um, you're just another soldier, really. You carried all the same equipment, everything else. But your first priority was to, to um, try to keep them alive, attend to the uh, injured or wounded. This is a two-year duty in Malaya. We came back by ship. It was called the uh, Sir Lancelot, which, is, uh, which was the sister ship that Sagella had, which was blown up in the Falklands. So we came back. We did about six, seven months training in the jungles, like in Kananga and and then we went to Vietnam in uh, June '68. Um, okay, we went we went by the Sydney uh, or the Vungtau Ferry, as they called it, the aircraft carrier. Um, and you know, looking around and thinking of all the people on bo- that were on the ship there, that some looking around and saying to myself, "I wonder how many of those are not going to make it." Well, initially we're based at a place called Nuri Dat, which is, um, I can't remember exactly how many kilometres outside, uh, away from Vung Tau, which is the main port. And there was a big military base there as well. Um, it was within the first two weeks of our being in Vietnam, and we had to do what they call a climatisation type exercise, where normally they sent you an area which is supposed to be reasonably safe, so that you can get used to terrain and you know the heat and everything else. Uh, but I remember on this particular time and I, that uh, I could hear the people in front of me giggling and laughing, and I couldn't figure out why. And it's not until until I got to where they saw this two graves. One was a full, fully covered in grave. The other one was a grave with a bloke half buried, and his hand was up, sticking up in the air, and everybody was shaking his hand, saying, "You know, oh, tough luck, pal." 
part that got me where we um, um, we did get hit by our own artillery. We did got hit by the, the Yanks uh, straight after us. SAS had flushed out 50 VCs roughly, and they're heading our way. So you know, they do the normal thing. They get the artillery. Uh, they get the artillery to drop a few rounds, and you know, to get some bearings and all that stuff. And uh, we heard the first round. I was sitting on top of the APC at the time, on, the, on a high ground, but the, we had was surrounded by paddy field. And then the first round landed a long way away, and then suddenly the whole place started exploding. And so we got, got the, the massive blast and everything else, and things going past us that, you know, it looked like slow, slow motion, actually. And there's two other blokes, the same thing happened to them. It landed not far from them, blew them up in the air and back down. Most of the shrapnel had been probably suppressed by the mud and water. They were lying flat in the face in the mud, and I saw the hole not far from the hand, and I said to the platoon, I, I really don't want to look at the other side of these blokes. So I pulled them up, and the virtue of the bloke just about jumped in the air, and what had happened is, because they'd been blown up and down again, they weren't going to move one inch, because they, th they thought the safest thing would be just to stay <laughs> flat in the mud there and, and hold their breath. Everybody looked around and said, we wanted to join the enemy because we reckon it had been safer. So uh, it was a, you know, a sense of humour, you know, I mean, that's the sense of humour you've got to have in those, in those places. We had a stint at a place called the Horseshoe. And if I mention the Horseshoe, a lot of people will know what I'm talking about. The Horseshoe was a fire support base and uh, it was next to a village called Dapto, which was a known enemy village. I think it was 8th of July, 1968, if I remember um, I think a few, uh, about three VCs were trying to get into Dapto. There's two checkpoints, and they, and they tried to fight their way in. Now, Black Hawk Pat O'Connor, he was killed uh, from, uh, I think it was a blast. I saw for another medic, and we looked at him, and I couldn't see what had happened to him, you know, because I couldn't see any obvious signs at the time. We checked him out, yes, he was dead. I think it was a little trickle of blood under his left arm there. It must, it must have been a small piece of shrapnel. It must have pierced his heart, I'd say, because it wasn't, wasn't a massive wound. And there's another bloke called Dutchie, who had an SLR and had his weapon pointed at Pat at the time of the blast. Now, the, when he got knocked over from the blast as well, he fired his SLR. One day we were drinking at a reunion and he started crying and he says, I killed him. I said, killed who? He said, I killed Pat. He told me, you know, he said, when I got knocked over by the blast, I accidentally fired my SLR. I said, you didn't kill him. He said, how do you know? I said, because if you'd hit him from where you were, the exit hole would have been that big, you know, so you couldn't have hit. And all this time, this poor bloke had thought he'd killed his own mate and, and just kept quiet about it. On that same day, there was unfortunately three civilians killed and a young girl. That's the upset me the most. And, uh, and I have to admit, um, they, they're caught in the crossfire. A lot of them were out in the field, or farmers. The, little, the young girl got on the bike, I think, and she started pedalling towards uh, the village, probably panicking. I don't know how old she would have been, 12 or 13, something like that. She was had the back of her head blown off from a 50 caliber from up the hill, horseshoe. And, uh, and the two oldies were killed as well, though we had to take their bodies back up the, up to the horseshoe and then had to find out from the village next door who owned them. A couple of days after they got the body, but I was at the checkpoint again, and the funeral procession went past. It must have been the girl's mother. You remember her looking at me, 
and almost you can almost feel the daggers going through you know you know you've killed my daughter sort of thing oh i didn't kill her you know you sort of put yourself in her, her position you know, my 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 young daughter's out there in the, in the, in the paddy field working hard and all that and suddenly she's caught in this bloody fight that she probably wants nothing to do with it they just want to get on with their work and sell their produces and all that stuff and they get caught in this thing i don't mind admitting to you i cried and uh, i thought i was a wimp at the time I, I, you know, I thought I was a wimp, you know, I thought, you're supposed to be a soldier, you know. You've got feelings, I guess. You, you don't know how you feel until the moment of truth comes. You know, I've been seeing a psychiatrist for 30 odd years now, and that incident is um, one of the incidents I talked to him about. I was there for a year. No, when I came back, um, I was all right because I came back by the Vungtau ferry again. I, I suppose I'm being on a ship for two weeks. I had some time to, to get used to not being in, in a war zone. I remember staying at Dad's place, 69. Dad lived at a place called Hornsby Heights, next to the bush. Our battalion was going overseas again, but I said, no, that's enough. I had two years over there and one year there. I said, that's enough for me. So I just finished off the last 18 months. Then I got out, I joined the um, police service in 1972. When when I was with the police service, I was in Bridge Street. That's where the uh, Intercontinental Hotel is. Actually, that's built on top of where we used to work. I had to be medically retired because I just couldn't cope anymore because of my service-related disabilities. I went. I got medically charged from the police service, then got uh, ended up with a TPI through Veteran Affairs. And I thought, well, I'm, I can't sit around and do nothing. So from about 1993-4, I started doing voluntary pension work. And then it went from there to there. I've been doing it for nearly 25 years now. I used to walk down the street and there used to be a lot of moratoriums. You don't take it on the servicemen because they only went where the government they told them to. It's the government that you've got to get stuck into. And don't pick on the soldiers and throw paint on them and, you know, and swear at them. They were only doing a job they were asked to do, you know, and we keep reminding people that, you know, they, they, they picked on the wrong people. Produced by Neil Ashworth, with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation.